Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. Many of you have been with us from the very beginning of the start of the church a year and a half ago, and you might know that uh, there are a number of individuals and churches really throughout the world that have helped us launch this church. It takes a lot to launch a church and start a church. One of those churches is named Harvest Church. It's located in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, two guests that we have with us this afternoon are Steve Winstead and Carson Merkel. They are here on the front row, and I would encourage you to come and greet them after the service. Say hello to them, tell them thank you, and to pass a message back to the congregation at Harvest Church that we're so thankful for their contribution and participation with us in this church plant. So we're grateful for how God has worked through churches like Harvest. Thank you all for joining us and for your helping us out in such an incredible way. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston headed out for a day of outdoor adventure in the rocky desert of the state of Utah in the United States of America. He loved to rock climb and hike. He went alone though, and he didn't tell anyone where he was going. While he was climbing in a narrow canyon, a 350 kilogram rock was pulled loose and it pinned his right arm against the canyon wall. He couldn't get free. He was stuck there all night and all the next day and for four more days in addition to that, five days total, Aaron Ralston was stuck in that canyon. With no hope of anyone finding him, it would be only a matter of time before he died of dehydration. He only had a liter of water with him. He had no jacket. He had no mobile phone. But he did have a knife. Aaron Ralston wanted to live, and so he made a very, very big sacrifice. He amputated his own arm. He climbed down a 60-foot cliff, and he walked seven miles before being picked up by a rescue helicopter. Ralston had to weigh doing something that was very, very costly in order to gain something of even greater value to him, life. Christians follow a king who lived a sacrificial life to gain something of inestimable value to him, the forgiveness of sins for all who look on him in faith. So if King Jesus lived a sacrificial life, what kind of sacrifices are Christians called to make if they're going to follow him? That's the big question that our text explores this afternoon. We're reading and studying in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, uh, Ruth is at the back of the room and she'll bring one to you. Raise your hand if you'd like one, if you don't already have one. We want you to have a Bible in front of you. The scriptures that we're looking at today are quite striking. They're difficult and powerful. And so I want you to have it in front of you. If you have one of those Bibles that are being handed out, you should just turn to page 493. But the rest of you should turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Let me read that to you. 
They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you're our rock and you're our redeemer. Amen. Well, the entire sermon, if you were to reduce it down to a sentence, is this. Live a sacrificial life in obedience to our sacrificial Savior. Live a sacrificial life in obedience to our sacrificial Savior. Now, there's going to be three points to my sermon this afternoon, and I'll tell you those as we go along. When we begin in this passage, where we are in the book of Mark in general, the disciples of Jesus are not doing very well. They understand that Jesus is the anointed one sent from God to rescue his people, but they don't know what it means for Jesus to rescue. They don't understand how he's going to rescue. Jesus has told them very plainly already even before our passage today, that he'll suffer, he'll be killed, and he'll rise again from the dead. But it just doesn't make sense to them. In addition, they don't understand what it's going to take for them to follow the Messiah. 
what their following should look like, what should characterize it. Even though he's taught them that, and these are his words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But they couldn't hear it. They didn't understand it. And like many of us, they needed to hear the truth about following Jesus over and over again until Jesus would open their spiritual eyes and open their spiritual ears until God would give them an aha moment of deeper understanding. As we begin in chapter 9, there, right at verse 30, Jesus has come down off of a mountain where he was transfigured. He was robed in glory, bright and shining. And he gets down to the bottom of the mountain and he finds his disciples in the midst of an argument with the religious authorities. The reason? Well, they couldn't cast a single demon out of a little boy. Now, you should know and remember that they have cast out many evil spirits from many, many people prior to this. But now, it is as if faith in Jesus, the source of their authority and power, has drained away as they've experienced more and more ministry success. They become more and more focused on themselves and less and less focused on Jesus. And so Jesus, who is so, so full of grace and patience, sits down to teach them again. He wanted them to understand his sacrificial life. And so the first point in the text this afternoon is see the Savior's sacrificial life. It's verses 30 through 32. See the Savior's sacrificial life. And the irony here is that these three verses, for us standing on this side of the cross and looking back at the life of Jesus, are perhaps the easiest to understand out of all the verses that are in this passage. But for the disciples, they perhaps were the hardest to understand. Jesus and the disciples are in the northern part of Israel when this passage opens, and they are beginning to make their way south through the region of Galilee. But they're not going village to village and preaching the gospel, healing people and casting out demons as they've done earlier in the gospel. They're actually staying out of the public eye because Jesus wants to be alone with his disciples to teach them. He wants some private time with them. And in verse 31, he tells us, Mark tells us exactly what Jesus taught them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So this is the second time he's explained it to the disciples, so that cleared it up for the disciples, right? Well, no, it didn't. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. If you're not a Christian and you want to learn about Christianity, these verses might be a surprise to you. It might be a surprise to you to know that Jesus knew that he would be arrested and killed. It was no surprise to him. It wasn't an accident when it happened. He intended for it to happen, in fact. 
And he also knew that he would rise from the dead. He intended for that to happen as well. There are some non-Christians who want to argue that this was no ordinary thing for a man to rise from the dead, that people have been resuscitated after their heart stopped. You know, of course, there have been cases, situations, strange medical circumstances where a person's heart stopped and they're brought back to life. But no one, no one has ever spent months and months explaining that they're going to be killed the exact way that they're going to be killed. And then to go on and say, my body is going to be lying in a grave for three days and then I'm going to get out and walk out on my own. No one's done that. More than that, this is the second time that Jesus is teaching his disciples what seems like a very simple message, and so we should know that this is very, very important. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection are at the heart of the Christian message. They're at the heart of all that the Bible teaches. You know, earlier in our service, we read that question and that answer from what you might have seen in your bulletin was called a catechism, which is basically just a teaching tool for Christians. It goes questions and answers, questions and answers. And the question was, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Let me read it to you one more time. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and to bring us back to God. By His substitutionary, atoning death, He alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. That's why Christ had to die. To provide the forgiveness of sins for people like us. You know, each week, every week that you attend a church, you should hear something about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You should hear it in any church, any good church. If you go to a church, in fact, and over time you don't hear that, generally speaking, every week or very, very frequently, I would recommend that you stop going to that church. Because if they're teaching the Bible and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the Bible's message, then they're not teaching the Bible very well. You need to hear that often, and you need to have it connected to whatever else is taught in the Bible. If there's something in that message that I just explained to you or that this catechism explains that you don't understand, you should ask. You should ask us about it. The disciples were afraid to ask, don't be like them. <laughs> don't be like them. Turn and talk to the person who brought you. Ask them what they understood about the catechism or something in the Bible passage that we're reading today that maybe didn't make sense to you. Don't, left, don't leave that stone unturned. Find out for yourself. Pursue it. Look into it. We'd love to answer any questions that you have about the Bible, not only the person that brought you perhaps, but anyone that you've seen up front, any of the elders of this church, please come and talk to us. Now, many of you are Christians, and whether it was a year ago or maybe it was decades ago that you became a Christian, you are suffering now because you're following Christ. Maybe your family is not Christian and 
you're being mocked for your faith. Maybe you've made difficult God-honoring decisions at work, and now your job is under threat. Maybe some of your friends and family members are ridiculing you because you're attending a church that's not the particular type of church that you're expected to be a part of, and so they're shunning you. They're actually shutting you out, and it's difficult. Some of you have a spouse, the person who's closest to you in your life, and yet they don't share your faith in Jesus Christ with you. That's painful. All these situations are painful. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. You're following in the footsteps of your Savior who made the ultimate sacrifice. In His obedience to the Father, He walked the path of suffering. And you're not alone in your suffering as a result. Your suffering and your sacrifice is not meaningless. As you suffer, you're identifying with Jesus, with Him, and He is with you in it by the power of His Spirit which indwells you. Now, be encouraged. We serve a suffering Savior. Now, Jesus spoke plainly about the sacrifice that He would be making with His life, but the disciples hadn't understood yet that the sacrificial life of Jesus must shape how they lived their lives following Him. And it should shape ours as well. And the first way that it shapes our lives is that it teaches us to sacrifice our pride. And that's the second point this afternoon. Sacrifice your pride. Verses 33 through 41. Sacrifice your pride. Jesus and the disciples keep moving south and they come back to the town which was their home base when Jesus first began his ministry. It's a town called Capernaum. And when they're inside the house together, he asks them what they were talking about on the road on the journey back. But none of them will answer because it's so embarrassing to tell him what they were talking about. They had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. You know, earlier in chapter 9, the disciples were arguing with the religious leaders, and now they're arguing with one another. I mean, these, this group is going from bad to worse. <laughs> and the crazy thing is that they're arguing about who's the greatest just after they all failed to cast a single demon out of a little boy. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to let this important moment pass. This competition among the disciples calls for some important teaching. You know, all the way to the cross, Jesus is going to be teaching them over and over again about what he, what he meant when he told them that if they wanted to follow him, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross. So look with me at verse 35. He sat down, which was the posture of a teacher, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, when Jesus uses the word first here, it's parallel to greatest, what the disciples were arguing about. Who was the greatest? They were essentially arguing about who should be first. 
And Jesus was saying, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you must be last. You must be servant of all. Jesus had taught them that in order to save their lives, they needed to lose their lives for his sake and for the gospel. And now here's another upside down teaching, something that doesn't make sense in the world, but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God. Lose to save, make yourself first, excuse me, make yourself last to be first. Lose to save, make yourself last to be first. But he doesn't simply leave them with words. He goes on to show them. Now he's in this house in Capernaum, and there must have been other people moving around in it. Even children that were passing through, perhaps playing in that very room or maybe a room just adjacent to it. Now, he calls one of the children to himself. And it says that Jesus took him in his arms. You know, I can imagine him taking that child and pulling him up close to his chest. Perhaps with the child facing the disciples, looking at them, wondering why he's in the room and why Jesus has called him there. A child, innocent, maybe a little scared looking up at these 12 men who all think they're the greatest. And he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, first of all, it's clear that Jesus loved children. <laughs> That's the easy part about this passage. And even though in that culture, children were not thought to be that important, they were not considered to be very significant until they grew up and matured. But Jesus, by this very act, is showing that children are very, very important to Him and therefore very, very important to God, regardless of what society thought of them at that time. Now, some of you work in our children's ministry, and I want to thank you for doing that. In fact, um, you're doing something very, very important, whether there's one or two children in there or there's 15 or 50 children in there. It's so important. They, those who go out and teach the children during the sermon time, they miss the sermon. They don't get to hear it. So right now, Kath Lodge and Lonnie Alito and Alana Pentecost and Jennifer Aliman are with the kids. I'm so thankful for them, and I'm so thankful for all of you who serve the children in that way. We believe that children are important. They're important to teach, and it's perhaps most important that we as a church equip those of you who are parents for you to evangelize and disciple your children. It's actually chiefly your role to do that in their lives. Covenant Hope, I want to encourage you, those of you who haven't had a chance to and your members, I want to encourage you to serve in the children's ministry. That's one way to do important gospel ministry, to teach the children. Many children come to faith in church Bible lessons. I want to encourage you also to get to know one another's children here in the church. When visitors come in with their children, ask what their children's names are. Don't ignore them. Introduce yourself. Talk to them. Address them. And if you're single, I want to encourage you, engage the children of the church in conversation. You know, just last week, um, Kezia Lodge came up to me and asked me how my week went. Yeah, well, that's Kezia. 
Kezi is able to carry on quite a conversation, actually. Um, but actually, I think you'd find that uh, many of the children in our church could carry on a conversation with you if you're, if you're patient and you ask simple questions and you listen well. When you pray through the directory as well, the directory of our members, you should pray for the children of our members as well. They're listed right under their names. Pray for the children to come to faith. Pray for their parents to be sharing the gospel with them and discipling them well. Pray for their struggles, the struggles in the family with discipline and, and raising them up to know the Lord. Now, there is more going on here in what Jesus is doing with this child in front of the disciples, and then we need to explore that. Jesus isn't simply teaching them that children are valuable to God, though He is teaching that. Jesus and the disciples, they both spoke a language called Aramaic, and you should know that in Aramaic, servant, which Jesus has just told the disciples they should be, servants, servant and child are the same word. So even more, when Jesus sent the disciples out to do ministry in pairs back in chapter 6, He told them that there would be villages that received them and some that, that did not. And so, in a sense, they were going out to be ambassadors of Jesus. Now here, Jesus is speaking again in this language of being received or being welcomed when He holds this child in front of Him. Now, you need to be clear. Jesus isn't teaching here that if you're kind to children, you're making yourself right with God. Okay, it's good to be kind to children, <laughs> but he's not teaching that all you need to do is be kind to children and you'll be right with God. No, rather the message from Jesus is this. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be least or last, like a seemingly unimportant child. And when people receive you based on your godly humility, because of your, your acting in obedience to me, then people will actually be receiving me, Christ, and ultimately God the Father. So he's saying, rather than rolling into villages and acting like you're all important because you think you're great, when you act humbly and you live like your sacrificial Savior and you're received because of that, people will be receiving essentially me and the Father. The character of the disciples had to match their message and their master. That's what he's saying. They have to be humble if they're to represent a humble and sacrificial Savior. They must sacrifice their pride they, they needed to deny their worldly impulses to be great in the world's eyes and instead be servants to all. That's how they needed to live. You know, pride is the mother of all sins. It's the sin that drove Eve to reach out and take that fruit in the Garden of Eden, thinking that it would make her like God. It was pride. But you know, it's easy for us to look at the disciples here and chuckle to ourselves about them arguing about who's the greatest, <laughs> but we need to take a good look in the mirror. We can be prideful 
about all kinds of things in our lives. Pride stalks us just as much as it stalked them. We can be prideful about the skills we have, for example. Maybe skills in the workplace that make us valuable to our employers. We think we're better than the people around us. Or we might be prideful about skills in sports that impress people and cause people to congratulate us, be impressed with us. Some of us slip into pride and arrogance about our education. We think we know more than the person next to us. We think about how many degrees we have or certifications. You know, oftentimes parents in their ungodly pride will puff up their children based on academic achievement. It doesn't serve them. Some of us view our culture or our nationality with pride. That's different from being thankful for your country. (laughs) I'm talking about thinking that your culture and your country are better than other cultures and countries. That's different. That's pride. We think that we have better ways of living, maybe better ways of organizing our families. And, or perhaps the f- worst form of pride is spiritual pride. We think of the theology that we know. We think of the words that we can toss about that we find in Christian books. We consider how we've grown in Christ over the years, and slowly we begin to consider that it's more an accomplishment of our own rather than what God has done in us. That's the growth of spiritual pride. When that happens, we're thinking less and less about the forgiveness and grace that sustains us each and every day, and we think more and more about what we've done to grow the good decisions that we've made. You know, all these different forms of pride, they keep us from following Jesus in the ways that He wants us to. Pride tears relationships apart. It divides us based on culture and nationality. It pits husband against wife. It pits children against parents. It turns us into rivals of one another. Pride is all based on comparison. Comparison to the other people around us, or maybe even just imagined people. Never stop hunting the sin of pride in your life. The day that you think, I'm done with pride, (laughs) I'm past that, you're in trouble. And whenever you see pride in yourself, oh, brothers and sisters, repent. Ask for forgiveness. Stop thinking of how you might be greater than the other person. Start thinking of how you can best serve other people. Look for ways to serve others in the ways you spend your time. Look for ways to serve other people in the way you spend your money. Look for ways to serve others in the simple things like how well you listen in conversations. Are you really listening? carefully to what they're saying. Are you thinking more about what you're about to say? Think of the person in this room who can do the least for you and think about how you can serve them. Sacrifice your pride. And when you sacrifice your pride, you'll end up serving others. 
Now, the disciples must have understood that with that last statement of Jesus about any child being received in his name meant that Jesus was being received and the Father was being received. They must have thought that that statement was assuring to them that when they lived humbly and sought to be servants of all, that they would be true representatives of Him and of the Father. But the disciples, they're still filled with pride, and they even misunderstand Jesus' assurance to them, and they think that being sent by Jesus was a privilege that was exclusively theirs. (laughs) And so the disciple named John speaks up, and he tells Jesus about how they had encountered someone who was casting demons out of people in Jesus' name, but they tried to stop him because he wasn't following them, John reports. John is expecting Jesus to commend him. (laughs) He's expecting a pat on the back. He's probably looking around at the other guys and thinking, maybe Jesus will think it was me that actually stopped him. Then he'll know that I'm the greatest. But instead, Jesus corrects him. Look at verse 39 and onward. It says, But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Once again, their pride is at work, making them think that being a representative of the Messiah is only for them. They're automatically excluding others from the possible role of representing the Messiah. Jesus says, no, no. If others are acting in my name, which means in obedience to me and according to my character and my purposes in the world, then they're not against us. They're for us. Furthermore, he goes on to say, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now again, Jesus is describing the disciples being received by others. So giving the thirsty disciples a cup of cold water represents welcoming them. It it means uh, supporting them in their mission. Even though it's a small act of kindness, Jesus is describing it as an indicator of faith in himself and in the message of the gospel which the disciples would carry. So again, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is saying that simply giving cold water to a Christian means that you get a reward from God. It's not that simple of a message. It's deeper. He's describing a person of faith, a person who has trusted in Christ and believed in Him, who's carrying out servant-like attitudes and actions towards other Christians. Jesus is teaching them to sacrifice their pride so that they can recognize and celebrate the true work of God in and through others. It doesn't have to be about them. It can be about what God is doing in other people. You know, one of the reasons why we pray for other churches around the world and in this city every week is that we believe that we're not the only ones carrying out God's true ministry in this place. Thank God. Thank God for that. You know, if a church is preaching a true gospel, even if they've chosen to do some things differently than us, we want to pray for them. 
I mean, we want God to grant them great fruitfulness in ministry. You know, what if we prayed for revival and for God to pour out His Spirit so that lots and lots of people came to Christ and He answered our prayers? Only He answered our prayers by making it happen in another church. (laughs) Maybe, what if He made it happen in UCCD who meets in the room next door? Or maybe He would make it happen in Fellowship Church that meets down in the Gloria Hotel. Or maybe He would make it happen in Crossroads Church, which meets near us as well. Or Redeemer Church that meets in Dira. Or any other church that's preaching the gospel. Would we celebrate just as much? If we've sacrificed our pride, we'll recognize and rejoice just as much in the true work of God in and through other individuals and churches. We would rejoice. We might ask for God to send a little bit of it our way as well. (laughs) But we would be praising Him for new lives in Christ. Now Jesus has confronted the disciples' pride and He's called on them to sacrifice it, to kill it, but His teaching to them wouldn't be complete without telling them how serious their pride really is. They need to know that it's sin. And that sin that's not dealt with that's not sacrificed, has the most serious of consequences. And so Jesus continues in verses 42 through 50, teaching them to sacrifice their sin. That's the third point this afternoon. Sacrifice your sin. Sacrifice your sin. Verses 42 to 50. So with 42, Jesus' teaching takes on an even more serious tone. He's been urging them to reject their pride and to serve others, to celebrate the work of God in others. And now he teaches them what it will cost them if they don't sacrifice their pride. He's describing to them both someone who has trusted in Christ or maybe perhaps someone who hasn't trusted in Christ. Look at verse 42. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The little ones here is a reference to anyone who is a believer in Christ, any faithful Christian, any faithful disciple of Christ, believers. And it's serious here because the disciples have just reported to Jesus that they tried to stop a man who was responding in faith to Christ by casting out demons in His name. The disciples were urging Him to stop. They were sinning. And the consequences of sin are horrible. They're so horrible that Jesus needs to describe it in the most graphic of terms. And so He tells this gives us this horrible, horrible image of someone having a huge stone tied around their neck and being thrown into the sea. A millstone, of course, is a huge rock that was used to grind grain. There's no way that you could swim with a millstone around your neck. I mean, this is, this is a terrifying image I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm maybe on a boat out at sea, I look out into the water and 
I can't help but be afraid <laughs> to think about what it would be like if I got thrown overboard or I, I got dragged down under. It's terrifying. And then Jesus turns the attention to anything in the disciples that causes them to sin. And he illustrates it by pointing to different body parts. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then he considers if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And then if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And in each case, he's saying that it's better to lose this valuable part of your own body than to keep it, continue in sin, and ultimately to suffer eternally in hell. Now, once again, you should read this carefully. Jesus isn't saying that you should literally mutilate your own body to stop yourself from sinning. <laughs> no, Jesus has already taught in prior chapters that sin issues from a person's heart. <laughs> That's the source of sin. But he's using these gruesome and gory images with extreme language to drive his point home. That sin leads to eternal death in hell. And he's also painting a picture of true discipleship that true disciples will fight sin. They will look into their lives and look to sacrifice it. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you are fighting sin in your life. Are you on the hunt for sin? Sin is dangerous to you. You know, there's a, that famous quote of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Oh, it's so true. I wonder if you're making costly and difficult decisions to avoid sin. Something that's difficult for you to do. Sin oftentimes makes it difficult for us to root it out. <laughs> you know, oftentimes we treat sin like it's a naughty child. We, we want to banish it to the corner. We want to put it in a timeout, so to speak. Of course, it's going to come back out of the corner. That's if we treat it like a child rather than we treat it like a ferocious animal that needs to be slain. That's how we need to treat it. That's what Jesus is describing here. Listen, there's lots of areas in your life that you might need to take drastic action to fight your sin. Christians do that. For the person who struggles with treating alcohol rightly and properly, that person doesn't need to hang out in bars. They need to take drastic measures. Maybe they'll lose friendships over it, but they need to stay away. For the person that struggles with their anger, some of us struggle with our anger. We sin in our anger regularly, maybe with a spouse, maybe with our coworkers, maybe with our children. We need to take drastic measures to root out this sin of anger. And keeping and holding your tongue in the midst of things that frustrate and 
make you angry is like a little death sometimes. <laughs> oh, there's all kinds of other things that we may need to do as Christians to fight against sin, to look for it in our lives, and to take drastic action against it. Listen, brothers and sisters, attack your sin. Don't accommodate it. Attack it. That's the life of a Christian. A friend of mine is an infectious disease physician. And uh, whenever I meet up with her, I'll ask her about some of the cases that she's been working on. And many of the cases are, well, I don't want to really describe them to you, other than the fact that people get infections and they eventually are faced with the choice of do they lose an arm or a leg or another part of their body in order to live. If they don't cut that part of their body off, they would die. This is the way we need to treat sin, like it's an infection that will kill us. Well, if we don't attack sin, if we let it go, if we don't take drastic action against us, against it, Ultimately, sin leads people to hell. And Jesus speaks here about hell. It's hard to get past these verses without talking about hell. I want to tell you four things that we learn about hell here. Four things. One, hell is the punishment for sin. Hell is the punishment for sin. In verses 42 and 43 and 45 and 47, sin is clearly the reason for being sent to hell. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has spoken over and over, saying that man's problem is sin against God. The consequences of your sin in this life might be a pleasure. You might experience pleasure from your sin initially. Or you may actually suffer for your sin in some way in this world. But the worst consequences, consequence for unforgiven sin will not be experienced in this life. It will be hell. Number two, hell is horrible torture for eternity. Hell is horrible torture for eternity. Listen, hell is worse than being drowned. Hell is described here as an unquenchable fire. There's no relief from its burning. It never, ever ends. It's even described here as a, a place where their worm does not die, which seems to be saying that it's a place of rottenness and death. You know, some people foolishly think, look, I don't mind going to hell. We'll have a party down there. All my friends will be down there. There's no friendship in hell. There's no pleasure in hell. There's no love in hell. There's no contentment in hell. Hell is horrible torture for eternity. Number three, Jesus will judge who goes to hell. Based on Jesus' words, people will be thrown into hell, like the person with the millstone tied to them is thrown into the sea. Listen, people don't have a choice after they die. The Bible is clear about this. When you die, after you die, it's too late. 
Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. As Jesus indicates here in this passage, by the drastic measures that you can take, listen, your choice is now. Now is the choice between heaven and the kingdom of God. And that leads to the fourth point. You can avoid hell. You can avoid hell. You know, in each of these situations where the extreme sacrifices are made to cut off the thing, whether it's a hand or a foot or to tear out an eye, something that causes sin, taking that drastic action is evidence that someone has trusted in Christ for eternal life. This is evidence that these people are disciples that take these kinds of actions. It's described as entering life. And in verse 47, it's described even more fully as entering into the kingdom of God. And we can say that this is true as well about these other examples of what it means to be a disciple. The being last in order to be the greatest. Or not thinking exclusively about the work of God in people. Slaying our pride. All these are evidences of someone who is a disciple of Jesus. It's not the way to enter the kingdom of God. You need to know. The way to enter the kingdom of God is to repent and believe in Jesus. That's all. And then the life of a disciple takes this shape, the shape that Jesus has been describing. I want to ask you, where will you go when you face Jesus. I hope that you've seen in all these verses this afternoon that the key to choosing life and the kingdom of God is Jesus himself. It's the person of Jesus. Will you see your sin? Will you turn away from it and confess it to him? Will you believe that he is the beloved son of God sent to live and die and be raised again? Will you look to him in faith for forgiveness? Will you follow Him, denying yourself and living for Him? Now is the time to choose. There may not be more time. It's going to be costly for you to follow Christ, no doubt about it. But it will be far, far more costly for you if you don't. Verse 49 and 50 round off Jesus' serious and sober teaching here. He tells the disciples that everyone will be salted with fire. Salt in the Old Testament was both a preservative, but it was also something that God had commanded the Israelites to add to their sacrifices when they brought their sacrifices to the temple. They had to sprinkle salt in those sacrifices. In Leviticus 2 verse 13, he says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So Jesus is telling them that just as his life is going to be a sacrificial life, the disciples are to live a sacrificial life as well if they follow him. Their lives are to be salted with fire. It's as if the disciples are sacrifices themselves. 
And the fire that they're going to be salted with is self-denial and self-sacrificial living for the sake of others and for the glory of God. The cutting off of important body parts described in the verses just before. I mean, that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The suffering they chose now as followers of His is absolutely necessary. It's what disciples do. And he goes on to say that salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, he says, and be at peace with one another. And with that statement, he brings it back around to the first problem that he encountered when they were in the house in Capernaum. They were arguing with one another. They had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. This whole lengthy teaching session started with the disciples because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Their sinful pride was driving them into competition with one another. They had their eyes off of Jesus and on themselves. You know, our corporate scripture reading was from James 3, and it said, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Have you ever thought that jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart is demonic? (laughs) That's what James tells us it is. The strife between the disciples was because they had not understood the sacrificial life of the Savior and they had not followed Him in His self-denying footsteps. They needed to serve one another, not compete with one another. They needed to stop causing each other to sin and instead, in humility, celebrate the work of God in those around them. Only then could they be at peace with one another and be faithful disciples of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must do the same. The story of Aaron Ralston sacrificing his arm to avoid death sounds like an extreme measure that none of us would want to be faced with at any point in time in our lives. But the reality is that we are faced with a far greater, far more serious choice than Aaron Ralston. Our choice is to deny ourselves, which is a sort of death in and of itself that enables us to be joined by faith with Jesus, the life giver. When we do that, we not only choose eternal life, but we avoid eternal death. That's the sacrificial life of a disciple who's following our sacrificial Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you looked on mercy with us. Our sin was great. It was inestimable. It was as deep as the ocean. And yet your mercy is even more than that. Your mercy covers all our sin when we turn to you in repentance and faith. We praise you for the atoning substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Lord, enable us to follow in his footsteps in this life and bring glory and honor 
to him and to you. In Christ's name, amen.